Today's scripture reading is Matthew 7, 24 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I was thinking about this passage as the storms were passing today. The winds were whipping, and it got up to maybe 70 miles an hour, but uh, it just brought new life to this passage. You know, before I became a Christian, I was pretty obedient. I obeyed the law, so to speak, at least the the big tangible ones, because I didn't want to get in trouble, and I certainly didn't want to go to jail. But when I became a Christian at the age of 28 years old, I began to understand that I had to obey God now, not just the law of the land. Um, But I wrestled with obedience as being a big deal because I knew that Jesus had died for my sins in the past, present, and future. But then I went to seminary, and then I began to understand obedience is a big deal. However, during that time frame, I recognized that my understanding of obedience was primarily law-driven or performance-driven, and I would believe the lies that if I obeyed God, he would love me more, and if I disobeyed God, he would love me less. But I'm so thankful that in the past few years, the Lord has really been shaping my understanding of obedience into a much more beautiful picture, and that's what I hope to talk about Uh, as we go through this passage today. So let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you so much for this time that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that you are the God of heaven and earth. Lord, that the rains fall down at your command and the winds blow based on your desires and that you actually are a God who speaks to us. So God, thank you for giving us ears to hear Lord, give us a heart to understand and faith to believe and to obey. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is the last week of the Sermon on the Mount. And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us how to live as citizens in his kingdom. That's important to him because he wants us to follow him. He wants us to become more and more like him. And as Jesus is teaching, he often uses concrete realities to explain spiritual realities. In this case here, in the passage for tonight, he talks about a person who builds their house on the rock. When they do so, when the storms come, the house will not be blown away. But the foolish person builds their house on the sand. And when the storms come, the house gets swept in away by the torrential flooding and storms. Well, let me give you a little hint. Jesus is not simply teaching us this for an architectural lesson. But he also is not trying to teach us about building codes, but what he's trying to teach us is how he created us to live and to obey. And so what I want to do is to start out with verse 24 
And it, he makes the point very clear already from the very beginning of the passage, hearing, obeying is, live, is living wisely. So therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man, like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I love the gospel because the gospel is for everybody. And for every one of God's people, every one of God's people can hear his word. And every one of God's people can act on his word. And every one of God's people can be wise. And every one of God's people can have their house built on the rock. But notice that there's an order to things. Hearing comes before doing. Listening to sermons is a good thing, right? It's good to hear sermons preached. It's good to listen to podcasts. It's good to read your Bible. It's good to read devotionals. But Jesus is telling us, that we not only have to hear the word, but also act upon it and obey the word. For God, hearing and doing the word are not separate movements. They're all part of the same thing, part of the same reality, because he knows that it only does so good to hear the word, but the word was meant to move us to action. And so he said hearing and obeying the word are, are a package deal. And we see this all throughout the scriptures in Deuteronomy 6. God writes, hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. From this passage, we have a clear understanding that hearing and obeying the word is just not a Sunday-only thing, but it's a daily thing. It's a way of living. And God speaks to the same point again in James chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. And so here's the plain message for us. Hearing the word must always lead to doing the word or obeying the word. Because if we don't, what does it say here? We live deceived lives. We forget who we are in Christ. We're deceived about who God is and what God has done. And we will forget to know how God has called us to live. And so God is very clear, but here's the bottom line. We really don't hear God's word unless we obey God's word. We really don't understand God's word unless we obey God's word. Well, let me give you a simple example. <clears throat> Many of you may have experienced this for yourself or in a parenting situation have experienced this. A mother tells her child, don't touch the hot stove. So what does the child do? Touch the hot stove. And what happens? He, he cries, right? So here's the question. Did the child hear his mother? Yes. Here's another question. Did the child understand his mother? No. Right? But here's the last question. If the child is told by the mother one more time or on a separate day or in the weeks to come not to touch the hot stove, do you think the child will obey this time? What do you think? Yeah, more than likely, right? Why? Sometimes, right, sometimes. Because the child has experienced a connection between disobeying his mom and pain that he received. 
Okay, so it's one of the things that we have to um, just consider because we're just like the toddler. Repeatedly, God tells us to do things or not to do things, but what do we do? We do it anyway. And when we do that, we experience pain, we experience heartache. And so we can't make fun of that toddler because we do the same thing. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It sounds like a lot of repetition, right? But it's meant to be. Essentially, Jesus is saying, hear my words, love one another. And then he says, obey my word, love one another. If you hear my word and obey my word by loving one another, People will know you're my disciple. Really clear again, right? But let me pause to be very clear. What Jesus is not saying is that you have to obey in order to be saved. That's not what the gospel says. Our salvation does not come through our obedience. Rather, obedience flows from our salvation. That's a really important point to, to, to make. But let's take a look at three commands from the Sermon on the Mount. And they're going to be big ones, but these are part of Jesus' words. He says, if you hear these words, act on them, do them, obey them. So the first one is, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let me tell you a story. Les Gross, who was one of the former pastors here at, at Midtown when it was um, just starting up, um, he's been serving for almost 16 years overseas in the Horn of Africa. And in the early part of his ministry, the Lord gave him the grace to just spread the gospel all throughout the Horn of Africa. In one village, the matriarch of the village came to know Christ, and he refers to her as Mama. And so Mama is sitting under teaching one day, and Les is teaching the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. And right in the middle of Les's teaching, she gets up, she leaves the room, and she heads down the road. And, and Les is going, did I say something to offend her? And so a few days later, Mama comes back. And so Les asks Mama, what did I do to um, offend you? Or what, what happened when you got up? She said, oh, no, 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 you didn't offend me. But when I heard the word of God that I needed to forgive, I knew what I needed to do. And so I got up left and walked for a few hours to ask for forgiveness from a woman who stole my cow 35 years ago. The cow was supposed to be her diary in terms of for her wedding day. And so she got to this woman's house after walking several hours and she fell to the ground in front of the woman's house. The woman comes out and she says, please forgive me because I've harbored bitterness in my heart towards you for stealing my cow. And the woman says, I stole your cow. I should be the one asking for forgiveness. She says, no, 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 no. God has commanded me to obey him by forgiving you. And I need to do that because it's been tearing me up inside. And the woman not only forgave her, but she actually came to faith in Christ as a direct result of mama's obedience. And so it's a beautiful story, isn't it? On a couple of counts, number one, it, it challenged me like no other. How often do I hear the word of God and immediately do what I'm supposed to do based on the word? 
right? Think about that for yourselves. But also, one of the beautiful parts of the story is that God not only had an impact on mama, but God used mama's obedience in order to impact someone for the kingdom. These are true stories. This is not just a parable, but this is is, um, God's people living out his word. But let's look at the second command. This is really broad. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Oh my goodness, how about that command? Don't worry. Isn't worry and fear and anxiety a regular part of the fabric of our lives? Why in the world would God command us over 300 times to not worry, don't be anxious, do not fear? Because he knows that if we live a life of worry, that we're going to be swept down the river of fear, right? It's going to impact our lives. It's going to erode our foundation, and we're not going to have any stability. Instead, God says, don't worry, but instead, trust me. Believe that I got your back. Know that I will provide for you. Believe that I'm in control. Because anyway, if you worry, it doesn't add any any days to your life, does it? If anything, it only gives you a stomachache. So let's look at one last command. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, Martin Luther King was a shining example of loving his enemies. And I want to read a portion of a, a speech that he gave that displays enemy love in the midst of intense suffering. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us for dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force, so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ, is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. Wow. I can't imagine. But surely the Spirit of God was moving and empowering Martin Luther King to have such perspective and a posture towards those who was persecuting them. Jesus says simple words. They're they're easy to hear, but they're hard. I'm going to suggest impossible to obey apart from Christ and the power of his spirit. He says, forgive. Do not worry. Love your enemies. So what happens when we hear and obey the words of Jesus? He continues to teach. The rains fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. What Jesus does not promise is that if you hear and obey his word, you're going to get your dream house. No, that's not that. That's not that. You won't get an HGTV house if you hear and obey his words. But he also doesn't promise that if you hear and obey his words, that you will never experience the storms of life. Rather, Jesus promises that as you hear and obey his words, you don't have to worry because he's with you. You're going to make it. He's going to 
he, he's going to give you the confidence that you need because you're putting your trust in him. And ultimately, he's thinking about the ultimate storm and the ultimate um, judgment that will come at the end of time when he returns. Because you don't have to worry about any of that because I'm going to be with you every step of the way. In John 16, verse 33, as Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure, as he was heading to the cross, Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. And so this is an important part because Jesus is telling us this parable about how to weather the storms of life and actually the ultimate judgment that will come at the end of time. But know that Jesus knows your battle with loneliness. He knows your chronic pain or your chronic sickness. He knows your chronic sin struggles. He knows your fears and your sorrows and your shame that you may have. In other words, Jesus knows everything about you as you are living in a fallen world. Jesus knows how the evil of this world has overcome you and overwhelmed you, leading to brokenness and even trauma. But Jesus says, I will sustain you. You will, you will make it. Not only will you be sustained, but as you hear and obey my words, as you follow me on the narrow path of righteousness, you will actually thrive and flourish in this fallen world. So let me ask you a question. What are you building your foundation on? What's your foundation of your life? Is it your wisdom or knowledge? Maybe you're resting on your achievements or your accomplishments. Perhaps you are placing all your weight on your dreams or your job or your savings or your retirement, or maybe you're so focused on your kids that your children is your foundation. So any foundation other than Jesus Christ will not sustain you during the storms of life. All other foundations will collapse, leading to disappointment and eventual despair. And it's no wonder if you look at the news recently, there's an increase in suicide rates all around the world. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That if your foundation keeps crumbling, life becomes unbearable and you lose hope. On the other hand, when your foundation is sure and steady and your hope never fails, you can get through anything and everything. But let me just remind you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that your obedience leads to your salvation. But what Jesus is saying that he knows about our disobedience and our sin and our rebellion in the past, present, and future, but he, got, but he has it covered, and he's covered it with the blood of Christ. But let me also give you something that's very important, given the fact that, as we sung earlier, there's no condemnation in Christ. God's grace does not give you permission to disobey. In fact, God's grace gives us the power to obey. I'm going to say that one more time because we talk a lot about the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace does not give you permission to disobey him, but grace gives us power to obey. In fact, Jesus speaks directly against disobedience as he keeps teaching. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell and the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed 
it collapsed with a great clash. It is interesting that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a warning. Jesus warns us about the dangers of disobedience. So why is disobedience dangerous? Well, simply put, disobedience is sin. But let me explain further. When the prophet Nathan confronted King David after the king's adultery and murder, this is what he said to King David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And if we take that to apply to all sin, not just adultery and murder, we can see that whenever we hear God's word and disobey God, we're despising his word and doing evil in his sight. Have you ever thought about your lack of forgiveness or your worry or you not loving your enemy as despising the word of God and doing evil in his sight? Well, let me, let me give you, uh, as I was thinking about this word despising, um, a couple of foods came to mind. When I was growing up, I despised asparagus and sauerkraut. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> but I love it now. I go for the probiotics and the sauerkrauts. Um, but anyway, the other picture that I got in my mind was when I was a father with young kids and they were transitioning from milk to kind of, I wouldn't call it solid food because it's all gooey, right? I would take off the, the, the jar, the, the cap of the jar, and I would dip the spoon in. And if the child just senses it's something they don't like, what do you, how do they express that? You know, they start grimacing on their face, right? They, they, they shut their mouth and their lips up so you can't get that spoon in. And even though I'm coming at it like an airplane, you know, I'm trying to entice them to open their mouth to, to eat the green goo. If they get a little bit of that green goo in which they despise in their mouth, what do they do? Right? They spit it out, right? You know, it's, it's a funny picture when we see that. However, that's, that's what it looks like when we despise God's word. But God created and redeemed us to delight in his word. So let me give you another thing to consider. What's it like when you are around people in whom you delight? You know, it's a joy to be around, right? You love, you love being around them. Do you listen to them with loving curiosity? Do you, do you care about what they say? And if they ask you to do something within reason, you're going to do it with joy and, and without hesitation. But imagine flipping it and you're around people you despise. Do you listen to them with a loving curiosity? No. Do you care what they have to say? More than likely not. Do you do what they ask within reason, with joy and without hesitation? More than likely not. And so it's just a picture of what does it look like when we hear and disobey God that we're actually despising his word. And our disobedience reveals our hearts towards God, but also our disobedience reveals what we value the most and who we value the most. And more times than not, when we disobey, we value ourselves and our, and our understanding more than God. But listen to the psalmist as he delights and depends on God's word as described in Psalm 119. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. 
What a man after God, right? Oh my goodness, when I read this, I am deeply challenged. I am immediately um, challenged with, my soul is not consumed with longing for your commands, right? I, I don't find delight in your commands on a normal basis. And I want freedom, but for some reason, I don't connect freedom with obedience. But this is what God is telling us through his word. But I, I want you to remember that when you're confronted with the truth of God in this way, God is saying, that's okay. I know your heart, and I know your disobedience, but I want you to come to me because I have covered your sins with the, my blood. However, I don't want you to stay there. I've given you grace not for permission to disobey me over and over again, but I've given you grace so that you would have the power to obey me and actually find freedom and delight in obedience. So Jesus' commands is clear and simple. Hear my words and obey my words. The apostle Paul in Romans 7 even shares his struggles with this. He says he does what he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do what he knows he should do. So what keeps us from hearing and obeying God's word? Well, we disobey when our sinful desires drive us more than spirit-led desires. Galatians 5 sums it up in a, in a straightforward way. Paul writes, I say then, walk by the spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. There's a battle going on within us. And so if our sinful desires is clashing with spirit-led desires, and if we don't submit to the spirit, what do you think is going to happen? The flesh will take over. So here's a question for you. What sinful desires drives your disobedience? Let's think about the lack of forgiveness or a desire not to forgive. Perhaps you don't forgive because you want the person who hurt you to hurt more. Or perhaps you worry because you long for people to affirm you even though you are so fearful of what they think about you as you interact with them. Or perhaps you don't love those who you consider your enemies because you want them to know that you're right and they're wrong or that you're better than them. These are just a sampling of some of the sinful desires that drive our disobedience for these three commands that we picked out from the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the truth. Apart from Christ, we will not obey God. We will lean on our own understanding and we will do what is right in our own eyes. And that's the refrain in the book of Judges. The Israelites, they would hear God's word and disobey God's word, and then they would touch the hot stove and they would be in all sorts of pain and suffering. And then they would cry out to God and he would send a rescuer and then they would find some relief. And they would promise that they would hear and obey his word. But what, what happened next? They did it all over again. And so the cycle just kept going over and over in what God says in his word in the book of Judges. They did this because they did what was right in their own eyes. But we disobey when we don't deny ourselves. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Simply put, by John the Baptist, he said, Christ must increase and I must decrease. Another way of saying it, denying yourself 
It is dying to yourself so that you can live in Christ. Let me say that one more time. Denying yourself is simply dying to self as you seek to live in Christ. But apart from Christ, you and I will not deny ourselves. But as we seek to live and to follow Christ, to hear and obey his words, we can deny ourselves because that's, that's the path to the freedom and joy and love. So, first point is that if we hear and obey God's word, we're gonna live wise lives. Second point, if we hear and, obey, hear and disobey God's word, we're gonna have foolish lives. But here's the third point that reveals what God has been teaching me about obedience in recent years. And the point is, when we hear and obey God's word, we abide in the love of Christ. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. As the Sermon on the Mount ends, the main point is not primarily the content of the sermon, but the one who preached the sermon. And everybody was amazed because they said that he is unlike any other teacher of the law. He teaches as if he has authority. And Jesus wants us to know that he is the only one with such authority. But with that authority, he wants you and me to know that he is love and that his words are loving and that he speaks to us with love, with words of love, so that as we hear his word and obey his word, we might be able to abide in his love. That's a total mind shift in terms of how we view obedience. Because remember I said that if we look at obedience through the lens of the law, it's like I have to obey I'm obligated to obey. I have a duty to obey. It's true, right? But that's not the, the total picture. And so if we have a, if the lens of the law frames our understanding of obedience, then we're duty bound and we're driven to obey and obligated to obey. But when we understand obedience through the lens of performance, it can result in fear-driven or shame-based obedience. And we can hear ourselves say, as I mentioned before, if I obey God, he's going to love me more. And if I disobey God, he'll love me less. So I'm going to obey God so he'll love me more. Those are both lies. God loves you fully and freely the moment he saved you. He will not love you more than he loved you the moment he saved you. But he wants you to understand that his love can free you to hear and obey his words. You know, Jesus does not command us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Jesus listened and obeyed the Father's will. And he um, displayed his love for us as he died on the cross. And so there's a connection between obedience and love and love and obedience. Jesus demonstrates that and Jesus invites us to live into that as well. So when we look at obedience through the lens of God's love, we see that first our obedience flows from God's love. Our obedience flows from God's love. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live, listen to this, should no longer live for themselves. Exactly what we've been speaking about but for him, but for Christ who died for them and was raised again from the dead. 
Here's the bottom line. God created you and me to be compelled by his love. God knows how powerful um, the struggle it is where we are prone not to deny ourselves. But as we see from this passage, we see that the only thing that frees us from from, from not denying ourselves is being overwhelmed by the love of God. And I want you to think about that. And it's one of the things, as I begin to wrestle with that and embrace that more and more, I see that it's so important for me to know and experience the love of Christ because the love of Christ frees me to hear him, to obey him, and to follow him. John, uh, 1 John four nineteen says, We love God because he first loved us. We didn't initiate love with God, but he initiated love for us. And as a response to receiving his love, what do we do? The, the God-given response is that when we receive his love, we love him back. The same holds true with obedience. When we receive his love, we follow him. We do what he says. We care about what he says. And when he asks us to do something, we do it putting our trust in him and not in ourselves. So with that point, let me just bring it down in two ways. First, knowing and experiencing the love of Christ will compel you to obey Christ. Even shorter, God's love is the key to obedience. Not the law, not performance, but the love of God. So week after week on Wednesday nights in Restore, that's all we're after. We're seeking to help one another to know and experience God's love through his word because we know that when we are compelled by the love of Christ that we will no longer live for ourselves, but we will live for him who died for us and was raised again from the dead. But let's flip it. The point at the very bottom of your bulletin, God's love flows from our, be- from our obedience. From John 15, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love if you keep my commandments. You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus does exactly what he commands us to do, right? He says, in order for him to abide in the Father's love, he does what the Father commands him. And he's telling us the same thing. If you want to abide in my love, do as I command. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Every one of us longs to be loved by God, whether you know it or not. And the reason for that is because he implanted that into our DNA because God is the one who created us in his image. If he's, a, if he's the God of love, then we're going to have implanted in our souls to a desire to know and experience his love. But a promise that you can see from John 15 is that if you keep his commandments, if you hear and obey him, you will abide in his love. You'll get to linger in his love. You get to experience the beauty and the fullness of his love. It's not something where he's like holding out this limbo stick and he's trying to see how low you can go or how high you can jump. Instead, he goes, no, I, have, I give you my love freely to you through Christ, but you're not going to experience my love unless you hear my words and obey my words. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. And so I want you to know, as well as myself, 
It's a promise that when you and I hear and obey God's word, we will abide in his love. It's not just going to be a head thing, but it's going to be a heart and soul thing. But this is an equal promise. If you and I disobey God, we will not abide in his love. Even though there's nothing that can separate us from his love, right? But we will not experience the nearness and the beauty and the intimacy of God. And so that's why oftentimes we struggle with God seems so distant or whenever I read the scriptures, I don't get anything out of it. And I question on a regular basis whether or not God loves me. It may be disobedience. Oftentimes it is, but not always, because we live in a fallen world where the enemy is battling the kingdom of God, and we're stuck right in the middle of that. But now that we've spent some time talking about love, we now understand some other dimensions of why disobedience is dangerous. First of all, disobedience keeps you unstable from being planted on the firm foundation of the love of Christ. Disobedience keeps you from knowing and truly believing that God loves you. And disobedience keeps you from experiencing and enjoying God's love. Some of you may be hearing what I'm saying about this connection between love and obedience. You may be pushing back. You may be saying, you know what? I I do believe that God loves me, but for some reason it hasn't worked for me. I don't really experience God in my heart or my soul. Some of you may be cynical about God's love because maybe your life hasn't turned out the way you expected it would. And your dreams haven't come true. Or maybe some of you are struggling to believe whether or not God can even love you based on what you've done or what was done to you. But let me encourage you, don't trust in your own understanding. Trust in God and his word instead. So what do you do with a sermon like this? How should you respond? Well, I'm going to give you some just simple things to think about, and also I hope that you would do it. First of all, I hope that you receive Jesus' invitation to abide in this love. It's an invitation that he's giving you right now because when he says, hear my words and, and act upon them, he's essentially saying, as you keep my commandments, you're going to abide in my love. Some of you are saying, I don't know how to abide in this love. Well, obey his commandments and God will help you to experience his love. But also take a journey through Psalm 119. And let me just, there's, some, there's three points there I want you to consider. I want you to, to discover the comfort and the love and the delight and the freedom and the strength and the joy and the peace that you'll have when you obey God. It's all throughout Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 176 verses in it, and it just keeps going on and on about this, but it's broken up into 26 stanzas that mirrors the Hebrew alphabet. So choose one stanza of eight verses every day for 26 days, and give yourself 30 days because there's days in which I don't, I don't open the Bible, right? But for do the 26-day challenge, so to speak, if you need buzzwords like that to get you going, but just eight verses a day and seek and discover how God describes what, what we experience when we obey him. But then reflect. Reflect on how the truths of Psalm 119 challenges your understanding of obedience. 
but also reflect on how God's truth changes your desires and your perspective on obedience. And then lastly, pray. Ask God to help you to know and experience his love because, as I mentioned before, the key to obedience is love, the love of God. But also pray and ask God to direct you on the narrow path where you can find delight in his commands. God will answer these prayers. Why? Because you're praying God's heart. You're praying God's word. And so you can pray with confidence. You can pray with boldness when you have these prayers. So some things to take away, and I hope that you will take the time to go on that journey. Every week, we have the privilege of celebrating communion. And communion is actually a beautiful reminder of the obedience of Christ as he heard and obeyed the Father's word. Jesus knew that his obedience would lead to his body being broken. Jesus knew that his obedience to the Father's will would result in his blood being shed. I don't know about you, but that's some pretty major, major confrontation in terms of knowing that this was the way, the path of obedience, but the path of obedience doesn't always lead to good times, right? But as far as Christ was concerned, it was worth it because he knew that as he obeyed the Father, that he would continue to abide in the Father's love. And so that's what enabled him to, in, to, to despise. It says in Hebrews 2, 12, 2, that he despised the shame as opposed to despising the word of God. And he went to the cross by faith with the purpose of loving us in such a way that we'd be able to love him. So I'm going to encourage you, before you stand up to take communion like we do week after week, take some time to ask God to help you to see areas of your life when you have heard the word but disobeyed the word. God knows, so you can't fool him. But take some time to confess, but also take time to repent. Confession, just merely mentioning your sins or your disobedience doesn't, doesn't equate to repentance if you don't actually act on them. Okay, so ask God for the power and the grace to repent, to follow him. If you're not a Christian, consider the love of Christ. Consider the love of Christ because it's only the love of Christ that will be that sure and steady foundation that you will need to endure the storms of life and ultimately the ultimate storm of judgment at the end of time.